This is the Misdirected Mark Podcast, a podcast about gaming, game mastering, and entertaining you, our listeners. We are explicit, you have been warned, and I'd like to thank Mike Willard for letting us use his music on our show. Now let's pick up those mics and get on with this thing. And welcome to the 36th episode of Misdirected Mark Plays. Tonight we'll be doing a retrospective of Children of the Shroud, Story 3. But first, my name is Jerry. My name is Phil. I'm Chris. And I am Old Man Logan. All right, let's get into some announcements. Anybody have any announcements that they want to throw out there? Jerry's on a podcast called Coffee Flavored Horror. You should probably check it out. It's yeah. worthwhile. They just did Hellraiser 3. I mean, that was a while ago when you heard this. This month, you might already have it if you're a patron of Mr. Mark Productions. The uh, Curse of the Pumpkin Farm, uh, our, uh, our second adventure cache. The first one is for free. It'll be Grimjaw's Cavern. They're both out there in the world for you to peruse and check out. So yeah, there's neat. that. It'll also be up on drive-thru if you're not of that persuasion. Probably for very little money because, you know, it's not a very big product. It's like four pages. But it's system-neutral adventures that you can check out. Very cool. Let's go to our read for another show on Misdirected Mark Productions. Bob, hit us with it. Hey, have you heard of the Gnomecast? I have. Because if you haven't heard of the Gnomecast, you should check it out. I've heard of it. Several gnomes. It's got stew, I hear. It's got stew, yes. Several gnomes from Gnome Stew get together. I've done it before. And And I have too. And then they talk about gaming topics and themselves, and they try to entertain you because they don't want to get thrown in the stew pot, and mm-hmm. they figure, you know, if we don't entertain. If you have been listening to the Gnome cast lately, the stew pot went missing for a while after me and Jared lost it. It was a freak accident hurricane. There was no party involved. The stew pot has been found, but also another one has been built, and uh, it's suspect whether the one that exists right now has the trap door at the bottom of it, Phil. I mean... Shh, we don't talk about the trap door. I mean, I can talk about it here. Angela doesn't listen to this show. We're fine. The first rule of Gnome Stew is we don't talk about the stew pot trapdoor. We don't talk about trapdoor. No, no, no. Is that from Sweeney Todd or something else? No, it's from Encanto. Encanto. Oh, well, we don't talk about Bruno. I didn't realize we were doing a spoof. (laughs) My bad. When it comes to murder and whatnot and trapdoors, I always go to Sweeney Todd. Good good choice. That's fair. Can't go wrong there. I'm not familiar. Angela, He's a barber. He's a barber. That, That much I know. All right, let's uh, move on to our main segment now, where we're going to talk about our Story 3 Retrospective. This is, doesn't really have a segment. Main segment. I don't know. That was good. That's, bum, that, bum, there, you go. there you go. Wow. <laughs> so, Fantastic improv. <laughs> story 3 was kind of a big thing for us. Like, a lot of stuff happened, right, Phil? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was... It was meant to be a much smaller adventure, and then I don't know, how many episodes did we roll out of it? Many? Yes. Whole I bunches? Lots. I think there was nine parts, all, all told. We had four recording sessions, nine parts. So what was it intended to be? Yeah, it was really just supposed to be a little story to move the Mesame plotline along, and also it had a scene, an option. it wasn't an optional scene because I wanted to get it in, but it wasn't fixed into the story for Gunny to learn a little bit more about his dad. That was really the intention was like, I want to move you guys closer to the Mesame thing. And I give Gunny a little taste. And I had I, I had drop ins for both of you as well, because um, the Earlis scene with Silas and Earlis out on the street. I haven't seen her since then, which is good. Right. But hmm. that was a drop in scene where mm-hmm. um, and I think you can hear it in the recording where I say like, oh, wait, like I have something we can do right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I of course, it all went exactly it. as you planned. 100%. No, I mean, I mean, yes and no. The mystery got solved. Mm-hmm. I think most of the plot points that you had intended were there. Yep. Oh, you hit all the pieces. How you got to each piece and the stuff that happened in between. One, I didn't have any of that down. And mm-hmm. two, we kind of took it and did a whole bunch of stuff with it. We certainly <laughs> did. There was a lot of improvisational moments. Yeah. Yes. Because of me, Bob, but, and Jerry. And, and I mean, <laughs> to be clear, like that part is kind of my style. Like, there was a spine, a spine, right? It was a mystery. So there was a spine of things to do. And in fact, it wasn't even complicated. But it was open enough approach wise for you guys to decide how you wanted to accomplish those things. And that's where the improv and that's where interesting die rolls and choices and stuff like that happened. I think it's a really cool lesson to take from that game where you don't really have to have a complicated adventure structure to have some really cool gaming, especially if you have a bunch of players who are willing to be active at the table. I'm going to say this as, um, I don't want to say rookie GM mistake. I will say this as novice GM mistake. And I was guilty of this for most of my youth. My novice 
GM mistake was that I needed to bring something really sophisticated, complicated, and really flashy or whatever for it to be good at the table. But over time, what I've learned is I need to bring something to the table to move things forward. And then you just let the table do its thing. And you just play from that. And then that for me is probably like a 15 year switch of GMing styles, because I was very much a wait till you see the story I'm scripting with these twists and turns and reveals and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And now my stuff is, well, here's a pretty straightforward plot. Go at it and let's see what happens. Yeah. It makes me think about the idea that when it comes to preparing to play a game, most of the work is on the game master, right? Mm -hmm. Especially when you're into a campaign as far as we were at that point. When you get to the table, though, to me, it's a good like 60-40 or even 50-50 split between the game master and the players to actually make the game happen. I guess 60-40 is pretty generous. I consider it more about you guys. My job is to just make sure there's enough there to have a start, middle, and finish. Mm -hmm. But the real, like the exciting stuff that happens, it isn't what I wrote. It's what you do with it. It's true, but like, let's talk about scenes now. I want to talk about some scenes. I think the important thing was the beginning moment of play when you were like Morris's death and you asked a question about that. Sure. And I don't know what you guys did. You guys will have to refresh yourselves, but I jumped all over it. I'm like, he was my friend and I lost a person that was important to me. Yeah, which was great because the stakes of, so the stakes of the game of that story jumped. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, on one hand, you guys are guardians. So I knew you'd do the right thing motivation wise, no matter what, but throwing out that leading question, right. And that's what it was, right. It was a leading mm -hmm. question. Totally. Throwing out that leading question open the door for you guys to make it personal. Yeah. And I did. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. I saw the opportunity. I'm like, oh, there's an opportunity. Let me just take that one. I knew you were going to do that. And Gunny didn't have as much of a connection mm -hmm. with Morris as you did. So I immediately was like, I'm backing up my friend. He's very passionate about this. He's upset at this whole thing. And he wants to take action. I'm like, I'm there. Let's do this. The reason I made the choice is it fit inside of my character because I had been non-magical or at least didn't have access to my magic for a long time, longer than I should have. Mm -hmm. So Morris was non-magical. It made sense that he was a friend of mine. Also, I think if I remember correctly, didn't you tell me that Morris introduced me and Mesame? Yes. Like yep. those stakes went even higher. Yeah. That's even more important. Yeah. Yeah. Totally is. It ties all those things together, right? So as a player, I'm just looking for those opportunities. Sure. And what it signaled to me as a game master was like, oh, I'll now go after you in the fields. Mm -hmm. You've opened a door for me to make this personal. So let's make it personal. Let's move on to uh, the next scene. It's worthwhile, I think, to kind of like walk through some of these in, in yeah, good. order. The academic decathlon. Now, I love this stuff in Children of the Shroud because it sets the normal, right? Like the non-magical side of things. Mm-hmm. And let's Lisa do her thing where she's like, we're going to do this thing and we're, we're competing. And it also gave you a nice hook in that like introduced the magical world into a non-magical situation, yes. which I thought was interesting. Why did you decide to start there? So in every story that we've done, because when we first did our session minus one or whatever, when we picked our setting, right, one of our setting components was high school. Mm -hmm. I try to hit every one of those components in every game. When I'm sitting down to put a story together, I like there to be a high school event that's going to somehow play into, and more importantly, because the high school is the non-magical world, is in juxtaposition with the magical world. Mm -hmm. Anytime I can make those two great against each other and put you in the middle of them, it, all the better, right? Like you can see it in the next story. In uh, Magical Night, it's prom night. Yeah. Yeah, but you also, create tension. Yeah. And that creates drama. Its intent was a couple things. One, I need a high school event. But two, I wanted to do something that was a little out of the stuff that we had talked about and prepped, which was I wanted somebody who was non-magical to get a hold of something that was magical, because that also kind of raises the stakes on having to intervene on this. It also ties it back to the second story when we had to save the Earth Troll. Because those people were tr looking to suck magic out of the Earth Troll to empower themselves. And some yeah. of those characters were non-magical, if I remember correctly. The one, the, the lead guy was magical. Yes. Everybody else was, yeah, everybody so else was non-magical. 
the academic decathlon scene also, I, I liked what T did in that sequence because it showed how T is kind of a goofy rebel. He's a rebel, but a non-destructive rebel. You want to talk about the, why you made the choices to show up with the Timbits and annoy like all the, the parents that were there? The annoying part wasn't actually part of his plan. He was actually showing up because he'd made a decision to support his friends. This was him going against his rebellion, which is, it doesn't matter that, I, that this isn't my thing. Like, if my friends are there, I should be showing some support for them. It's also showing team maturing a little bit. You think so? Because, like, you've always been supportive of your friends. Yeah, but this was, this was actively doing it in front of other people. Yeah. Like, he's going to show up, and I, I don't remember a, a lot of that. I don't remember annoying people with the, with the Timbits. The, the, um, you were there eating Timbits being kind of loud, being okay. like, go team, go, like, like that in an oh, academic decathlon. It was really funny. Oh, he, was, he, was there be, he was there being a sports fan yeah. to his friends. When the parents were all like, shush, I remember Phil doing that. <laughs> <laughs> like, can you believe he's like I mean, it's so kind loud. of a somber, like, you know, yes. quasi-boring kind of <laughs> it's thing. It's true. Like, <laughs> this may or may not have happened when I was a child, so I'm just going to leave it at that. So the plot kicks off with Lloyd and the Altoids that are magical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and we decide to, to follow him, and we get into a car, and I'm decided that I'm going to be a mess because my emo is super low and my life has been a trash fire. So I'd like to say that I will, and I, th- I know a number of you have done it, I know you've really leaned into it, is you played your stats through the game. Sure. Yeah, your emo is garbage, and you are just a hot mess through a good portion of this story. Mm-hmm. A hat tip to you, because you really did the kind of lean into your stats on this. I also just wanted that story, too. It sure. just, it, the emo thing gives me something that I can lever against mm-hmm. it, how it makes sense. Also, the fact that my life is a trash fire. This is a kid who should be in therapy, mm-hmm. some sort of like, you know, magically sanctioned therapy that isn't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So of course in the car ride, I start a fight with Gunny. I don't even remember what the fight was about. It's been a while. I don't recall exactly what the fight was about either, but there was some tension and we started to go at it. We had, we threw words. I'm pretty sure there was a trade on a table and Gunny attacked the trade and Gunny rolled some ones and you, and I rolled some ones and, and you then decided built some to, tension. and you built a tension by saying uh, animosity between the two of us. Yeah. I'd have to go back to the tape to, to check. Right, because I asked if I could pay you both, and can I just combine this into mm-hmm. a... Not in the notes. I just did a thing. And I asked if it was okay. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's an important thing. Like, if you're going to fight with your party members, because we didn't have that discussion about that in our session zero, you should probably just stop the game and ask, like, is it okay if we do this? And Bob was like, yeah, it'll be fine. I'm like, yeah, we've done this enough times, me and Bob, that it's not going to go anywhere yeah, terrible. I mean, there's a high level of trust to at the table, right? In general. So one, we always have safety tools deployed, but because we've all been gaming together for such a long time and because we have such a high degree of trust, like these things can happen. And a lot of times, like we don't really kind of um, lose, lose a, like lose a beat over it. You guys got into a fight over the fact that Silas was mad about Morris dying at Lowell's place. and was getting more and more angry about it. Gunny tried to calm him down and yeah, and then it got, like, kind of snippy and nasty. There's this friction between Silas and Gunny. It even made its way as you guys are using it to create a fake wedge. I don't think that I hit his pornus in that situation. I think it was just more like, I'm like, you're right, but fuck you. Could be. I think that's yeah. exactly yeah. what yeah. I said. Yeah, you were so upset about the whole situation. It didn't matter that I was right. Yeah, I was mad because you were butting into my emotions like any yeah. teenager would be mad about getting into their business and i think you had some if i remember correctly you were like let's just go kick his ass and take these altoids yeah let's break into that. his house and gunny's like mm, i don't know if we should be breaking into anyone's house in the middle of the day that's probably true <laughs> there was some teen impulsiveness again well played teen impulsiveness but it yep. definitely definitely happened this scene takes us to the front of lowell's house yeah and we decide to track him and everybody goes home and that's when Erlis shows up to talk to me. Yeah, I mean, all of a sudden I was like, well, do I just cut and send you home? Or, and then I was like, oh, I have this drop-in scene because it's literally in my notes. I have the mystery part. And then at the bottom, I have three scenes that just have a note on it that says, use these when it feels right. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, guess we're doing this one because it certainly feels right right now. That scene is interesting because it talks about how she knows that I have Mesame's essence in me and whatnot. But the important part, the, the, the dramatic part is towards the end, she's like, you're going to tell me when you find out what's going on. And I'm like, not if you're going to kill people. And that's a choice that I had to make. 
nobody told me what to do there. Like I actually had to make a choice and it was influenced by, uh, by Gunny and T saying like, we should probably not go off the handle. I made a move based on the previous scene. I will say one from a design perspective, right? From a prep perspective, this is very intentional by me, right? And I do this and I know you do it. This is, I'm going to put something out here that you are either going to strongly agree with that's going to cause problems or you're going to disagree with it strongly. It will also cause problems. Sure. Like, there's a no win on that moment with Erlis, right? If you agree to do what she says, you have become complicit to whatever mayhem she's about to let loose. Mm -hmm. And if you say no to her, you are facing down what is like this ancient elemental. She's old. And there's no win on it. In terms of scenes, I knew I wanted to have a scene with you, and that would have been okay enough. But I was like, no, there needs to be something productive from this scene. So let me put in a dramatic choice. I think the thing that I wanted to highlight, at least from a player point of view, is like my choice was actually influenced by the previous scene and the interactions that I had with the other characters. They made an impact on me. So I went with the impact that they made on me instead of betraying their trust. I also had no notes for anything after putting that out there, <laughs> right? I don't know what you're going to pick. And I don't know what it even like. I, if you had been like, I'm in, I would have written some shit later. Yeah. But I had like no plans for it into the point where I don't want to telegraph you into a decision. Both of these are tough decisions. Yeah, one man, way or the other. I'm a fan of the hard decision that doesn't yeah. seem like it has an upside. Yeah. Because those are the those are the choices that characters make that show off who they are. Yes. Those are character defining moments in play. And they echo. The consequences of that decision sh will show up again at another point yeah, in the story. I'm looking forward so. to it. Let's talk about the overpass scene. This is interesting because we all follow Lowe down to the river. Waterfront. The waterfront. Yeah. And he goes kayaking and you get the sense, Gunny, that there's something about your, or you, you remember there's something about your dad down here. So you go looking for it. Yeah. He had learned in the previous story yeah. that I had seen your dad hanging out in this area. So I was like, hmm, I could care less about Lowell at this particular moment in time. <laughs> I'm going to go look for my dad. And all I can care about is Lowell at this particular moment. <laughs> yeah. And what's interesting is that's my drop-in scene for you. And I didn't have a scene for Chris. T's like, oh, I'm going to go help Gunny. And I'm like, okay, well, good. You two are in that scene. And Chris is like, I'm going to wait for Lowell. Because at that point, I was just straight ad-libbing. Because you guys were angling to find Lowell and have a confrontation. So that whole scene with Chris, which I actually really like that scene because you see the Flameworth side of Silas <laughs> yeah. in that moment. Like he is intimidating, shows up just standing there at the water as Lowell's pulling the kayak out and is like, where are the Altoids? I love playing Silas. He's so complicated. Magic Enforcer showed up at that moment. So yeah, for you... I was prepared. Like, I was like, oh, yeah, there's this thing. It's a disc. And let me just say that there's a thing I did not anticipate happening after you heard it, which leads to a whole bunch of other shit. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah. That was the uh, yep. we find out that the winter wind that Gunny's dad is maybe working undercover with my dad. He's certainly been in communication with Victor Flamewood. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to drink this tasty Tim Hortons coffee. Yeah, I mean, we're, 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 we're speculating right here. Yes. I got a question for, for Jerry. So T, like, for the most part of these games that we've been playing, T has been playing support character or secondary character to me and Gunny. Like, how has that experience been for you up to this point, especially throughout these scenes? Like, what does it, how does it influence your play of the game? It's changed a little bit. I mean, it's different now, but up yeah. to this point. Up to this point, it was basically following what was going on and seeing what the story was. That's pretty much it. I don't, I don't really know what else to tell you about that. Yeah, so was it because, why? Why is it like that for you? Why weren't you more engaged in, like, main plot stuff, or why weren't you trying to get Be there? Because I didn't have a main plot for the character. Yeah, you just didn't know what to, to hit fill with? Yeah. Like yeah. I said, we got into, I enjoy trying new things with high school characters. I'm enjoying tea, and I think the direction that things are going to go in the next couple of weeks are going to be very interesting. But initially, I, I had tea, and I probably should have created a different character initially for tea, Because tea hit a little too close to some of the things that I bumped up against when I was in high school, as much as I hated high school, and as much as I hated the entire idea of high school. I tried to create the, oh, T's going to be the big dumb guy, which is not what I was in high school, but still had a lot of the same mores and attitudes. Probably should have picked something a little different. It's pretty interesting that you like you were like, I'm going to create the big dumb guy, yet one of your distinctions is not just a big dumb guy. Well, yeah. Well, you need to have that because we're playing a game like this. 
and it gave me some room to grow. Once I realized where I started to want to aim T, then it was a chance to grow the character, mm-hmm. which is why you've seen T doing things like studying more, paying attention. Like, I, di- I didn't just increase my geek die. I tried to do things in the game to show why that would happen. Sure. Kind of thing. And I did always want T to kind of be more of a leader type, but not start out that way. That makes sense. And that's why he's been slowly but surely starting out as a support character and then starting to be a little bit more of a decision maker and just go from there. We've talked about this before. When I come into a game normally, and I'm learning to change this, I come in, I'm like, okay, GM, give me your setting. And over the next couple of weeks, I'll come up with a, with a motivation for my character, as opposed to I'm going to come in and tell the GM what we're doing with my character, because I'm used to being in games where the GM has an idea of what, the, what they want to do with it and what their story arcs are before the game starts. Mm-hmm. And I realize now that this is not the way this group works all the time. No. Like, you have an idea of where, like, the Archimedes legacy is going. Sure. And okay. I, and even yeah. then that still yeah. failed. Because I'm like, you should give me something with legacy. And it didn't yeah. really work. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas this, I was like, oh, I'll just see what, what do you mean by urban fantasy? Like, I am not an urban fantasy person. Like, I've read, like, two and a half Dresden file books. And I don't dislike it. It's like number six or seven on my geek, on my, on sure. my geek fantasy. Yeah, that makes sense. Where for the two of you, at least, Bob and Chris, it is 100% your wheelhouse. Yeah, I consume oh, yeah. as much of it as I can. And you guys have played a lot of modern fantasy. I have read zero, you know? Tristan. And a lot of the games out there that are modern fantasy, I played, like, like everybody played Shadowrun. I played Cyberpunk, you know, that kind of thing. So I didn't have a strong basis for what to do with, with modern fantasy to begin with. It's interesting, because I always, like, think of, like, Buffy. Like, Buffy's totally a modern oh, fantasy yeah. which I've Which I've seen... Like few episodes. I've, of, I have not. I've, I have not seen an entire episode of Buffy. Now that I've watched, I've seen of. bits and pieces of Buffy. I've seen. I saw the movie. What's Supernatural? Another kind of modern. Fantasy. I've seen a, parts of a couple episodes of. Like I don't think I've actually sat through an entire episode of any what, modern fantasy. Warehouse Thirteen. There's a, there's a whole bunch of like. I TV turned that shows. one off after the halfway through the first yeah, episode. I get you. <laughs> Once I got the zipline, man, I was done. Yeah. <laughs> clearly, clearly not Jerry's wheelhouse. No, not at which all. Which is fine. Not that I dislike him. I just yeah. never got in on him early enough yeah, it's to. It's not to your jump. primary. I'm not jumping into Supernatural in season the, eight. You know. <laughs> I I get that. I get that. I'm I'm not I'm not poo-pooing yeah. anything, but I think people get a little bit too caught up with like genre and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like there's some amount of importance to it. But Phil had a nice a pretty nice setting document. I liked it a lot. It gave oh, me all the I, gave me all the ideas for what was going on here. But the core crux of storytelling is, is like, do you have a character that's compelling in some way, shape, or form? Mm-hmm. And what's compelling about it? Like to me, like T's family is interesting and the idea that T is a rebel who's not really a rebel is right. also interesting. And the idea that T could potentially be a leader, especially with these hot mess kids that he's hanging out with, <laughs> yeah. is also interesting to well, me. Well, rebel, rebel but not a rebel was one of the, we, that is one of the things we did talk about, mm-hmm. was that he thinks he's a rebel, but he isn't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I like that idea a lot. Like, he yeah. presents that way, but he's not at all. And, and he tends to overreact to any threat to the shroud. Like, every time there's a terror in the shroud, T almost always dedicates his next action to trying to fix it. Because mm-hmm. he's like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. <laughs> Plus, he's got really, really nice parents. Yep. <laughs> they're such, it's such the, no, the normal family. It's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're like exceedingly well-adjusted parents. Mm-hmm. Which might be why T isn't a hot mess yet. <laughs> yeah, that won't be until he goes to college and realizes that people are terrible. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, we confront Lowell. I confront Lowell. We uh, get him to give us some of the Altoids, but not all of them. We find out later. We have him set up a meeting with Samia for us at Delaware Park. You know about the winter wind. I find out about my dad. I get pissed again. Mm-hmm. I drive off, but then I come back because that's the right choice to make, really. I think the more interesting choice instead of just going to confront my dad right there. Then we set up to go to the park, but we have to wait until night. So we have a nice dinner with T's parents. Mm-hmm. I love those scenes mm-hmm. at T's house with his parents. It's really, really lovely. His whole family's nice. His whole family is nice. Plus me and Bob get to play the sister and the brother, uh, Geode and Amethyst. Well, and it goes in contrast, right? Like your family, they're not bad parents, but your dad is like the keeper of like so many secrets that he can barely speak. Yeah. And my mom knows probably all those secrets too. So Correct. she has a hard time talking about stuff with me all the time too. Yeah. And then you've got Gunny's mom who's non-magical. And a single parent. And a business owner. And so the crux of that is you've got T's parents, two exceedingly well-adjusted parents. I would like to see another scene with Silas and his mom. Sure. You don't see enough of Silas's mom in this thing. That relationship is, is important, but it's less important than the one between, not less important, it's less interesting than the one between him and his father. It's less contentious. Yeah. Because like a scene with me and my mom is like just nice. Like there's nothing to it other than it's like the better part of my life. The thing I've liked that we've been able to do in story three and you see a little bit of in story four is that 
your dad doesn't dislike you. That's not where the tension with you and your dad was. There was some tension with you not being magical. Yeah. Because there were things, as he confessed to you later, that were going to have to be done that he clearly didn't want to have You're to do. You're talking about wiping out my memory. Correct. <laughs> yes. And he obviously Fucking didn't want terrible. To, he didn't want to do that, right? So there's like... There's a real tension where he's like, "That's a this Phil boy... Beckyon dark ass thing right there." <laughs> yes. Wait, you can do that? You can wipe out memories? Yeah, <sighs> I think I asked that same question. You did, you did, and I told you, I told you to sudden craving for donuts. Yeah, I wonder why. But that's a thing where, with your dad, it's that there's this tension where, like, if he doesn't manifest power soon, and then you do, but those powers are all wrong, and he's like, "Yes, but no." And there's a thing that you guys haven't explored, and it's been hinted about in the story, but clearly Erlis knows what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Despite the fact that your dad is like the ultimate spy master, mm-hmm. Erlis is still somewhere up in his shit. Yeah, yeah. And even he knows to steer clear of her. There's something going on in the background between with those two, yeah. obviously. So he's, you know, all excited because he's like, oh, my son has magical powers. Oh, no. My son has magical powers. He has Erlis's daughter's magical powers. Mm-hmm. Dead ain't right. What yeah. is it? The Thank God it's the Catholic Church. Oh, no, it's the Catholic Church. <laughs> <Correct. laughs> it's that situation, really. <laughs> For me, that's the interesting part about your dad. It's like, your dad's terrible, but he's also a dad. He's totally a dad, yeah. Well, I mean, that people are complicated, right? Yes. Very. I like that kind of thing. I like that this uh, this game has made that apparently clear that people are complicated, except for T's parents. Yeah, well, there there's, has to be an anchor. There's right? zero complicatedness about T's parents. There needs to be an island, right? No matter how stormy it is. Because even at Silas's messiest moment, which I think we're going to come up to in a little bit, you encounter T's mom later in the story. In this scene. This is the scene that oh, okay, it happens. right. Yeah. And she gives me a hug and tells me it'll be okay. And she knows there's something wrong. She probably knows more than she's letting on. All these parents know more than they're letting on. Correct. I mean, when you manifested your powers, it didn't go unnoticed. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the and magical then the, community had ripples run, run through it. Like somewhere outside of this game, there's a meeting in a conference room. You know, I got a question because I don't know the answer. Jerry, Phil, who invented T's parents? Did, did Phil do that or did you do that? I did. Man, they're awesome. They're so nice. I embodied them. Yeah. If I remember correctly, like you were like, oh, yeah, I come from a big family. I have parents. And that's when I was like, oh, yeah, your dad's the main cook of the family. Then I just kind of yeah. took the reins of like, they're going to be real. Like they're going to be like adjusted, nice parents. The original concept for the family was he's got older twin siblings, younger sister. He's got a mother and a father that his dad and mom work for the veil at a high level, but not in the same capacity that Silas's does. And that T's whole rebellion is partially based on the fact that he has nothing at home to rebel against. Yes. His parents are loving. His brother and sister aren't super annoying. That he literally wants to rebel against something because he's a teenager. Yeah. And home isn't giving it to him. And he doesn't understand that. I wish somebody would have told us about the brother and sister not being annoying. They're not annoying. They're annoying to a certain degree because all siblings siblings are annoying annoying in some way. See, I grew up with two sisters and I hear all these stories about siblings being absolute rat bastards to each other and fighting and like none of that happened growing up. There's other issues going on, but uh, there's me and my sister really... were terrible to each other growing up. So I yeah. get that. I didn't fight with them. I even much more of a yelling fight than just, you know, I'm going over here kind of thing. I won't talk about the things that me and my sister yeah, did I, to each I other. I realize that. There was seven years in a row where that Christmas tree came down because of us. <laughs> that's that's all I'll say about that's that. That's a thing. I love my my sisters and so I didn't so the same thing. I didn't see that kind of Whatever. And I very much, I very much wanted to have to Jerry's rebel, a set of parents where he's like, I'm going out all night to some underground rock concert. Oh, that's great, honey. Yeah. (laughs) Have a good time. Have a good time. Just text us when you get in. It'll be okay. And your sister, your your older sister's like, buy me a t-shirt, you know? (laughs) Like when you guys went up, I think you go up to T's room to cast a ritual. His mom shows up. is like, oh, I'm sorry. Like I felt a ripple, but oh, it's okay. You're like... (laughs) Yeah. Did like, she come up with snacks? Yeah, she did. Yeah, yeah well, you're going to get hungry. Snacks, yeah. Get hungry casting rituals. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great family. Because she actually knows her son a lot better yes. than he wants her to. <laughs> By the uh, way, the crux of modern fantasy is just, when can you insert those normal moments inside of a magical situation? That's pretty much modern fantasy. Yep. I mean, Hidden World is one of my favorite genres. Like spy games, mm-hmm. like anywhere where I can put a hidden world inside a world is like my favorite thing. So moving on from that, comes the chase in the park, and uh, we had this really nice scene to this very uh, interesting sequence. Let me just say, from a prep situation, 
there's like 10 bullets in this section, which is like the stat block for Samia, the fact that you're going to have to duel her so that she'll give up Jenna. That's what it is. It's in order to get information about Jenna, you have to defeat her in combat because it seems honestly the most anime thing you could do in this situation. Yeah. And leaning into what you had already started with, we're going to turn up the anime subtones to this game. Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, you have to defeat her in combat and then she will just tell you where Jenna is, which is the next clue. There is some level. I mean, we have swashbuckling in there, right? Like, right. That's a swashbuckling trope. Beat your enemy, they tell you Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. If you defeat them and, you know, you have your sword pointed at them, very well, fine, I will tell you, I get my stuff from Jenna. You know, like that kind of thing. That's the intention, right? This is the leapfrog scene. I need you to hit this to get to what I think is going to be the exciting part, which is Jenna. This was maybe the more exciting part. <laughs> Surprise! Surprise! <laughs> Nothing happens in this scene that I'm expecting. So first off, we can't catch her. Like I mean, she just keeps fighting us off. We go round and round, and then she tries to get away. Yeah. And we catch up to her, but then she tries to get away again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mechanically, she just keeps winning the contest mm -hmm. and leaving. Mm-hmm. And she then, can. Right. Partway through, while she's trying to leave, tension erupts. Yeah, I don't remember exactly how I got angry at T. I think at the moment you two start fighting is when Gunny is involved dueling her. Yep. And I think you two are like trying to make assets to help out. But like then you two just start arguing over something. It has to do with Silas is getting more and more emotional and more and more full mm. of rage and more and more out of, so out of sorts. And when T tries to calm him down, they start fighting. T makes the mistake of trying to like listen and tries to hug him. Yeah. And then it just goes off and you froze T. I did. You iced him up. Yeah, I also called you a fake rebel in yes. that moment, too, which is really, I think, poignant because I think it's the first time in the game that somebody calls out what T actually is. Yeah. Yeah, that's accurate. And I think that's important. Like, I, in storytelling, be the storyteller for a second, sometimes you need a character to call out the stuff about another character. Mm -hmm. It just came up in play. He tried to calm me down. Things went wrong. I think it, that, didn't we do another one of those things where we both rolled a thing and like yeah. we got ones and there was like some sort of tension. So then yep. we just started fighting. Yep. yep. Well, we I just, played off the earlier thing. So when you guys rolled it, I was like, oh, can I put tension on you guys too? Yeah. You guys ate it up. Yeah. We're like hundred percent. And the only thing that stops us is we realize that the gun gun is in trouble, yeah. right? He like left. <laughs> yeah. Samia goes running across the park. Gunny goes running across the park and you two are still like, budding chests with each other mm -hmm. and then you're like oh shit where'd they go yeah <laughs> yeah me mechanically it was interesting too because after that i tried to like create an like an ice slide to help t get there faster but our distrust of each other for the the mm -hmm. tension like went into the opposite dice pool yes mm -hmm. which it worked which was cool but yeah. like it was cool that also that that die went into a dice pool mm -hmm. against it because we are not happy with each other so from behind the screen we came into the game and i'm like okay i'm expecting to get through a certain amount like i'm actually expecting by the time we're recording the, th that particular episode, I'm like, oh, we'll probably get through this fight and on to Jenna. And I'm hoping that I have enough material after that to fill out the rest of the story. So I'm like, if this could just go a few extra rounds, it'll make a good fight scene. And then I'm sitting here and I'm like, what the hell is happening? Like one, <laughs> nobody can put up the numbers to take her out. And she keeps getting away and running away. And she wasn't that tough. She wasn't that easy either, but she wasn't as tough as you guys. And there are three of you and you can switch out, right? But Doesn't then, count if we're fighting each other. Correct. Right. Well, I'm sitting here like these guys are all over the place and I'm like, oh, well, it's fine. Like we're generating more story play and the needle hasn't moved on my prep. We're still like in the same <clears throat> spot and time is just going on. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, let's see where this goes. Once again, it's worth saying at some point during that, I was like, Jerry, are you okay? I'm going to hit you. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like, I'm coming at you. And like, we paused for a second to make sure that it was fine. Yep. And it was. So, yeah. you know, we went at each other. It was so thematically correct. And, and it was so appropriate for already what a mess Silas is, that it's just more Silas out of control, kind of. Yep. And in the end, she gets away. I got to be honest. I had at no point thought she would escape. I, I just assumed... That even after a prolonged fight, one of you guys would run her down, catch her, whatever. And then it's like, all of a sudden they roll that last chase roll. And I'm like, oh shit. Like she gone. I'm like she's gone. And I'm like, 
I have nothing in my prep that deals with her getting away. Not that I can't handle it at the table, but I'm like, oh, this thing is now branched in a place where I was not expecting a branch to occur. Yeah, and then there's another thing that happens right after that that we'll get to in a second yeah. that is also something that you were not expecting. There's there's like four things I was totally not expecting that happened during this game. Mm-hmm. So she gets away. Yes. I think I expletive and walk away yes. yep, <laughs> to go sleep for the night because there's nothing else we could do mm-hmm. until the morning. Eventually, we get, I think we get breakfast the next day. Yep, we get we breakfast at the Greek diner yep. and bury the hatchet a little bit. Uh huh. And then we, we make the plan to go talk to my dad because we know about the thing. So yeah. why I did not think that you would go talk to your dad, I had in no time envisioned that you would take this recording and share it with, with I assumed incorrectly that you'd be like, oh man, we can't trust my dad. I don't know what's going on. Like, we have to handle this ourselves. And like, and I think at one point you guys talked about it. And then you're like, no, man, we're going to go confront my dad. And I'm like, okay. Like, <laughs> I mean, there was a certain amount of logic there in he's, our minds. He's that my father. Either <laughs> there's something wrong going on uh-huh. and you need to, to poke your dad about it. Like, what are you doing dealing with this renegade? Or they're working together and he's not a renegade. And that opens up a whole nother ball of wax. And it's like, yeah, we have to go talk to him. T's logic was, oh, now that we have this much in- information, he'll go, oh, well, you guys are this far and let us, in, you know, this is the key that opens the next door of trust where he says, oh, as long as you guys know this much, I may as well let you in because it's useful to have more people helping. <laughs> oh, how wrong yes, you yes, were. Yes. And yes. I'm mad because I'm like, you're like defying everything that you ever taught me. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I'm sitting here going, oh, no. They're going to advance that plot thread too fast. Uh I'm like, I need a way to put the brakes on this plot thread. And because here's the thing. What I know is if I had done what Jerry was thinking, I'm not sure you would finish this adventure. That's fair. My concern is if I tell you, because you guys are going to get to play the scene in the future, when you hear what Mr. Flameworth tells you, in that scene, you can tell me later, would you have finished the story or not? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm like, oh shit, in my head, I'm like, I can't have this happen. Like, <laughs> we're going to upend things and I, and I want this story to finish. So I'm like, I need a way quickly to ice this plot line. <laughs> so I had to think on my feet. So we do. We go and confront him in his office. And he's very open about it. He's, like, oh, hey, let's have a conversation. We threw the thing on the table. Yeah. We're like, he's like, oh. Surprised that we find he's like, where'd you find sure. that? And uh, then he walks around the room and starts lighting candles. Oh man, I'm like, we're fucked. Like as soon as he started doing that, I'm like, why'd you put us in a circle? <laughs> uh, I, I did at one point when because I know at one point I think it's T goes to put one yep. out and I do the watchman moment. Yeah. Right. Like, why would I possibly reveal to you my plan if you had any chance of stopping it? Uh-huh. So that's what happens. He, he goes around and lights the candles. We're caught in the circle. It's a memory wiping spell. I freak out and start manifesting flame powers. He's just like looking at me. Tease tries to put candles on because T is always calm and collected. And then he basically tells us everything and we don't remember it because of the spell. What you're talking about? We had a great conversation. We had an awesome conversation. Then we had donuts. Then we had donuts. And we felt great because we had a great conversation with Mm -hmm. your dad. and So relaxed. It was very, you know. Step one to Silas feeling better about life is that he is reconciled partially with his father yes right like that's, that now. is one of the big things that was messed up about silas is like he, him and his dad had this a great relationship and then it was contentious because he wasn't magical so one tick off the thing of silas being a mess and i mean let's be honest i took a pretty heavy hand right i'm like yes i need to ice this if we were playing a cypher game i would have started handing out xps right <laughs> i'm like i'm just gonna make a massive gm intrusion here and you're all going to just deal with it for now. We talked about it before, and I think you told us, like, yeah. I'm going to take a heavy hand, right? And th- this is the things that we talk about with, with mm-hmm. this stuff. Like, any skills that you bring to a, a role-playing game this is a vice show. Communication is key, but the right kind of communication at the right time is key, too. Mm-hmm. So this is like, I'm going to take a heavy hand. It's a technique that I can use. Are you all okay with it? And on top of that, right, this heavy hand is going to hijack some agency. Yeah. Yep. Which... Just to be clear, I have serious, serious, as serious as role-playing trauma goes. (laughs) When I was much younger, the GM who taught me how to play, who was not a fantastic GM, often hijacked my character's agency. So I am very averse to messing with character's agency 
regardless of what happens in the story. So for me to be like, I'm going to have to wipe you guys memories and cap this thing. Like I was a little uneasy, which is why I needed to kind of check in and then be like, if you guys are okay with this, I'm just going to like really put my thumb on the scale on this thing. Yeah. But you earned our trust well before that. While you said to us, I'm going to need to take your agency for a second. There wasn't a, well, it was a, okay. I appreciate that. And I'm, you know, I'm glad we could do that. But for me, as like a younger player, that was a huge, like I had like some, I had serious issues about that. Oh yeah, me too. (laughs) I'm still suffering from that trauma. (laughs) So there's another thing that you did too, after that happened, you put a trade on the table saying, I forget what the trade is called, but it's, it's basically something's not quite right. Something's not quite right. Like there's a count up clock. Yep. And that count up clock is like, oh, we're going to find out eventually anyway. Mm -hmm. So if you ever want to do something like that, especially with memory or whatever, it's a great technique to utilize. doesn't matter what game you're playing. You can put a count-up clock in pretty much any game that you want to put oh, yeah. it in. Oh, and, and I want to have that scene. Sure. Like, I want to pay that Absolutely. scene off. I just don't want to do it yet. So, I mean, like, technique-wise, like, there was an ask. Yeah. We agreed. We played out the scene. We asked within the scene, can we do some things, which you were like, yeah, sure, because it won't matter in the end, which is fine, though, but at least we got to show off some of our actions, like, as characters, how mm-hmm. we feel. Mm-hmm. And that's important. Like, in a scene, like, if you can show off a bit of character, that's good, I think, for you and for the players. I actually love this stuff at role-playing game tales. It doesn't matter that we're playing for an actual play. Like, I do this stuff when we're playing oh, without yeah. the mics on, too. Like, these things are all very important to me as a player, like, and as a game master. I like having that stuff at the table. I, I will say that other than probably speaking a little more slowly and saying some of the things that we're doing on the table, this AP, I would say this is like 90% how we actually play games. Yeah, I think so. There's a little bit that's a little different, but like, this is basically how I play games with you. And honestly, within like the first 40, like 30 or 40 minutes of when we do this on the mics, I stop actually paying attention to there being a recording and we're just playing. I go through the same process and I'd like to hear what everybody else does, but to get into the character of Silas, I do the same thing when I am playing Tam from our Ox game. Like there is like a certain thing that I do where I take a breath, I think really hard. I cover the, the three things that make the character the character and then maybe some other things that go along with that. And then I'm ready to play. It's not always easy to get into that frame of mind depending on how I feel that day, but I have a process now for going through and doing it. I have, I have a little something similar to that when I play characters. So like in our public access game, I, there's a thing I do, which honestly is like a little depressing, but I have to like put myself into Brian's kind of, um, it's a rough space to be in. Yeah. He has to like, I have to go into that kind of rough space. It's not easy. Playing messed up Silas for like four sessions was hard. That was like four months of that. Yeah. I don't know about you guys. What about you? When it comes to this for the actual play, I haven't done anything differently from other sitting at the table sessions mm-hmm. other than trying because i'm not always successful trying to maintain good mic technique yeah that's fair because other than that we're playing the game mm-hmm. and i'm doing my character and away we go it's the i'm still cognizant that the mic is there because i want to make sure that i'm not doing anything to screw up the recording and make it more difficult for you sure and i'm not always good at it but <laughs> the attempt is there this character takes a lot more effort to get into and think about. I try to think very carefully about what T says and how he says it, not be quite as emotional. T doesn't wear his emotions on his sleeve when he's talking. His actions are a little different, but his, but his speaking. Gree and Ox is, I could pick up Gree in, in 20 seconds. Gree, <laughs> Gree, is, Gree is pretty much... Goofy Doc Savage. Yeah, go- Goofy Doc Savage. That's fair. Tracy, for, for public access, I have to always remember what Tracy is. <laughs> Tracy takes a little bit more effort because Tracy's a bit more complicated and I need to go back in because again we're dealing with a bunch of things that I don't I picked three items like pick three things for your character's background I'm like these three things yeah I don't actually know what they are <laughs> <laughs> like your character likes John claude Van Damme movies great I haven't seen any of them from the 80s I saw all the 90s ones <laughs> so it's, I should probably go back and figure those out the early 90s works too so that takes some effort to think about no it makes sense mm-hmm. all right so after we had our great talk then we decided that we wanted to use Mesame's essence to track down Jenna. Yeah. But first we had to commune with the sword to make sure that we could do that. I thought that was a great idea. With the help of my compatriots, we go down into the Flameworth ritual room and with them feeding me mana, I am able to actually commune with the sword, which I've been trying to do since the very first yep. moments of the game. Like the mm-hmm. first scene is me doing that. Yep. By the way, we should talk about 
opening images of, of stories and movies and things like that sometime because mm-hmm. by doing that, you put a lot of focus on my character. Yep. And, and then it's the probably on purpose. If we go back to that first story, one, I know because Bob had asked for Gunny to have a transformation story. Mm-hmm. I know that his isn't the opening of the story. Sure. That's not the interesting thing. And then when you were like, oh, yeah, my girlfriend, like she was dying, like crawled into the you know window of my room and died in my arms. And that's how I got my magic powers. I'm like, yeah, we got to see this scene. Sure. <laughs> like, 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 I feel like it's very remiss if that comes up in character development and we don't put that out there. Plus also, and I can't talk about this till we get all the way to the end, but having taken background pieces and had figured out what this campaign was going to be about. Yeah, it's, it's like main plot. Like that's yeah. part of the main plot. Yeah. So it makes perfect sense. And if you, you know, I always look at these things in my head, like TV shows and movies. Mm-hmm. So what does the opening of this TV show or movie look like? Sure. This, that piece is a great opening yeah. scene. Makes, it makes perfect sense to me. I know that people that play longer campaigns and whatnot, we know this is a limited thing. That's a thing to talk oh, about. Yeah. We know we're playing for a limited amount of time. Mm-hmm. This, ge- this game will have a beginning, a middle, and an end. There will be an ending. Yes. And it won't be like 50 sessions down the line. It'll be like 12, maybe. When you have those shorter campaigns like that, you can plan a little harder because you probably won't have characters drop out that might be important. Yes. When you have a shorter game, I don't have to hold on to kind of really juicy things like that. I can just play them faster. So we're communing with Mesame, and boy, is this a super important scene for Silas, at least. And it, it's really nice because the, the two of you helped me. And before I could do it, I had to clear up my shit with both of you, which was nice. Mm-hmm. Like we... We became a closer, tighter knit group instead of being this three people that were kind of forced together. Like we become friends Like yes. over the course of these, these moments, like it has built our friendship. It feels natural, at least to me. I don't know about you guys. Oh, I agree completely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's nice that that stuff happened. So for me in this scene, and I don't know for you guys who GM frequently, there's a moment where Silas and Mesame are talking and Mesame gives him the pep talk. Yep. And none of this, because the scene isn't planned, the speech isn't planned, and I hear myself saying this stuff to Silas, and in the back of my head, I'm like, damn, that's really good. <laughs> like, like I, I mean, at this point, I'm just running on just straight instinct and improv, right? But like in the back of my head, the GM's like watching the scene going, yeah, yeah, no, that's good. That's good. Like, say something really inspiring about how he's a flame worth and like, like, it's happening, and I'm like, wow, I can't believe I'm saying this stuff on the fly. I don't know if you've ever had that before, but I had this semi-partially disassociated experience that I'm watching the game playing, and I'm like, what's happening here? This is really good. This is my play style, so like, yeah, I do it. I mean, it happens all the time. Yeah, I don't know if you catch yourself, though, like having those moments. Yeah. Because I'm like, wow, we're really hitting it. That exchange is like really heartfelt and good, and it's clicking. Also watching it in the back of my head going oh yeah yeah go go like <laughs> yeah there's moments that i'm like oh man everybody at the table is just like in perfect flow mm-hmm. i love that those are the moments that i'm like yes because the thing that you're saying right now i love it when it happens mm-hmm. i expect it of myself if i don't then i'm not doing a good job but that's me that's my high expectations for myself sure that's fair yeah but i'm with you like i'm sure there's a lot of people that are like yes they have those moments like that if I don't have those moments, I get mad at myself. Hmm. I, I, I love when great moments happen at the table, but like when great dialogue it, it happens. It was a great dialogue moment at the table. Yeah. Like, no doubt. I was, I'm right there with you. Like what you're saying, 100% agree. Yeah. Like it, it happened. It was awesome. Yeah. I do my better. Sometimes that dialogue, I like for me, works best when I write it down and kind of rehearse it a little. Mm-hmm. But we're paddling out in the lake here. If you're asking me from my point of view. Sure. like That's what you want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is like, if I'm not doing that on a consistent basis, then I feel like I've failed. Sure. So that's me. So we commune with Mesame. It's amazing. You tell me there's another version of, of this fire that's not anger, but passion. And it changes everything about Silas. That is check two on the Silas gets better train right yeah. there. Yeah, a very, very transformative moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's hyper important for me because without the two other characters at the table, without Gunny and T, I never could have talked to her. Mm-hmm. So it, it makes me indebted to them a lot. And I feel better after that. Silas stops being a hot mess. Yeah. And then we can really get on with what's going on, which is tracking down Jenna, which Phil then, we're like, we're just going to use Mesame's essence to to track down Jenna. And Phil's like, I need about 15 minutes to figure shit out. (laughs) Again, not wanting to rush plot lines. I'm like, shit, these guys are good. It's a legit 
request. And I'm like, I don't want to shut this down, but I'm also not quite ready for this. So I'm like, give me a few seconds. Let me get my stuff in order. We can go. So like the next thing is not super important. I mean, it is important. Don't get me wrong. Like we go and we break into a house. We break into Jenna's house. Yeah, apartment, you do. Essentially. And we find out the more interesting thing. There's a magic portal. Yes. And I think Gunny, you rolled so well, Bob, that you figured out how to open the portal. Yes. By looking at the magical symbols and stuff on the wall and my role was like, oh yeah, you figure if you just do this, this, and this and say these things, you're good to go. And I'm like, we can go through this like right now. And we did. Everybody's like, yes. I need to give credit where credit's due. So I was going to use the back rooms at a later date. Mm -hmm. Was not planning to use it for story three. I had learned about them from Senda's son, Mm -hmm. who was just telling me some Gen Z stuff as I was, you know, schooling up. (laughs) And he had said to me, because he's listening to the AP. So he was like, hey, you should do something with the back rooms. And I'm like, what's that? He explained to me no clipping through the back rooms. And I was like, interesting. So at that moment where you guys like make me stop, floating in my head, in my pattern matching ad lib head is this concept of the back rooms. And I'm like, cool, I'm using it right now. (laughs) So yeah, we get to pull in a very Gen Z kind of reference and we get to use the back rooms, which somebody I think sent me a picture that like there was a Spider-Man episode that makes reference to the back rooms. Not Spider-Man, uh, Nightwing comic. Oh, was it? It was was Nightwing. Okay. Yeah. That was me that sent that to you. Yeah. So we go into the back rooms. We're not there for particularly long. We just use it to track down Jenna and whoever her boyfriend was. Yeah, it's like the nether. The Kurt, nether. Kurt. Kurt. Yeah. It's like the nether. It just helps you travel. we don't find Kurt. We don't. But, but we, we find do, Jenna and we, Samia. We do find Jenna and Samia, and Jenna's trying to suck the essence out of Samia, and we save Samia, get her asses handed to us by Jenna for a while, and then eventually beat her. Yes. It's a great teamwork moment, right? Like we teamwork that up. Like another moment where the three of us get to be better friends because we did a thing together. And honestly, an interesting choice to us, Samia wasn't a good person. And it's like, we could have easily just been like, sucks to be her, but that's not. No, man, I'm a flame worth. That's 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 not not, how it works. That's not how this works. That's not how it works. I knew knew it wasn't going to be like that. At the core, we're good people and we're going to do the right thing. Justice, not revenge. Justice, not revenge. Exactly. I said that to Mesa May's mom earlier, Erlis. When you failed to knock her over with that one trait, I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, if these fuckers let her go, I don't even know what I'm going to do. <laughs> like, this story's gone on. Like, I, we're like in eight sessions or something. I'm like, oh my God, I swear if, the, if she gets away, like, what the fuck? And I'm like, all right, just let's see what happens. So you guys did a good job. Though. So we slapped her and then we had a, a very nice epilogue. Yeah. So we got mm-hmm. to talk to Samia. She told us a bunch of stuff about what was going on. We learned about the worm cult. Mm-hmm. Jenna's been thrown in some black site somewhere. Yes. We talked to my dad a little bit. We got Lowell to give us the rest of the Altoids. Oh, I love that scene. We're just leaning up against his car, his Tesla, I think he has, because yeah. it's rich. <laughs> what kid has a 16-year-old kid has a Tesla? Jesus. Exactly the kind of kid who has a, the tin of Altoids. Yeah. And then we go and we get Morris's essence. Altoids essence, and we, we release it, giving, giving some nice speeches. Yeah, which was very touching from my end of the table. I was like, oh, man, like this now brings it full circle. Like you had invest, Silas had had invested heavily into the friendship with Morris. And now this was like able to complete that circle. You know, here's one of those moments that always annoys me about people when they're telling me gaming stories, because they tell me about this cool moment in a game, but there's no context. Right. Because without the previous four sessions of play, that moment where we released Morris's essence doesn't mean anything. Yeah, there's there's not much weight to it at all. It's mm-hmm. why gaming stories are really difficult. Yeah, like because they're not like good stories. It's hard to pack a lot of that stuff. It's like when somebody tries to tell you how much fun they had playing Fiasco, unless you really go back and detail and tell the full Fiasco story, mm-hmm. it is hard to explain why the tilt is so funny. Yes, I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Gaming stories are hard for me. They're, gaming stories are hard, period. Ange and Jared on Thaga with Advantage were talking about that, I think, at one point in time. They're like, maybe it was on the Gnomecast. Like, people like gaming stories. They don't necessarily, sometimes it's not always about the gaming stories, but the enthusiasm the person has for the story. Absolutely. Then you can see how excited they were, We right? should mm-hmm. one day, because we are known for doing shows for things that cannot be done. Mm-hmm. We should just do an episode on how to tell better gaming stories. Oh, God. 
<laughs> it can be done. That's a hell of a challenge. I suppose it can. The storyteller in you, I have full confidence that if you stopped and thought about it, there is a way to teach people that, hey, before you tell this gaming story, here's how you have to set it up in your head in order to tell it to deliver like the maximum effect. I suppose. There's a way to do it, my friend. It can be done. I believe in us. <laughs> okay, last thing before we get out of here. Yeah. This episode's been long enough as it is. Sure, sure. I loved that this story overall really had that great idea of from small beginnings to large epic endings because it was a large epic ending with a real middle point. Like it is one of the best role playing game stories I've ever been a part of. I'm going to say from behind the screen, it was not designed that way. Sure, <laughs> that's yeah. fine. But it pleasantly became that. And I think that's for me and the whole reason why I think one of the reasons we're doing this retrospective is that in the middle of the game, I was like, wow, this story has a much bigger impact on the rest of this campaign than anything that's happened up to this point. This is like a serious turning point in character, in story. It sets up Erlis. It sets up what happened with you guys and Silas's dad. Like there's all this stuff on the table and I'm like, oh, we can now move harder into the main story. There is a constant building up to that finale with Jenna. Like it starts in a smaller place and just keeps moving to larger and larger places. And I think the thing that really kind of fleshes this whole thing out is that these secondary stories touched on throughout the entire story and they help change up that beat structure of the game. Like that moment with T's parents, that dinner, it's important because of one, the beat change two somebody telling Sias, like you can ask for help and I didn't ask for help in the way that maybe people or even me thought I would, but I did eventually like ask my dad, ask these guys. Mm -hmm. We got a touch on Gunny's story, which was important. It also shows that dinner there. Like that's why that dinner is so important. Cause it shows more about T's character too, about his family. You can understand why he's like he is. Well, and I think the argument between the two of you in the park and the resolution of it, it was also a big yeah. uh, stepping stone because it also shakes T up as well because in story four, I mean, Jerry should probably comment on this at some point, but after you're done, I, I'm going to say it from a, I'm going to say it from my side of the screen. Sure. In story four, T has stepped up yeah. into what's going on. And I feel like some of that started in the middle of story three. Yes. I'm glad you see it because I definitely see it from my side of the screen. I know. I felt like T was becoming more of a leader in the way he was acting in that part of the story. I agree. I thought maybe unintentionally, like we kept to a pretty strong theme of going from a place of chaos to a place of calmness and order. Because the whole beginning of this story is just chaos incarnate up until the, the finishing of the communion with Mesame. Even like the scene in the, the office, that is chaos becoming order. Yeah. The scene before the scene with Mesame and the scene with Mesame is all about chaos becoming order. And the thematic idea of like, we started with Morris's essence being in Altoids, and we ended with Jenna sucking the essence out of, uh, out of Samia. We stopped that, which was great, but once again, it's just like, it's like poetry, as George Lucas was saying, like, it just echoes within the storytelling. What I think is amazing about that is, like, some of this is intentional, some of this is instinct. It happens by the choices we make, the ideas, the scenes we drive towards. And for me, it will forever be the reason that I'm in this hobby is that sure I could write something like this and maybe it would be as good. I doubt it. But the fact that it just happens spontaneously at the table is for me, what makes tabletop RPGs magical. I agree. Yep. Absolutely. 100%. I guess that's all I have to say about this story three retrospective. Does anybody else have any final thoughts that they'd like to bring up? Killer fucking episode. Killer. Yeah. Killer set of episodes. <laughs> there we go. Yes. I like the things it sets up for the next story too. Me too. Oh mm -hmm. yeah. Because of that last moment when we find out that Casey has the worm tattoo on oh. her arm. Well, not just that. <laughs> I mean, sure. But that one's pretty good That's too. That's a moment where I'm going to pat myself on the back because I was like, because Jerry, Jerry had said to me outside the game, he's like, yeah, I don't think this thing with Casey's going to work out. I, I think I'm going to break up with her. And I was like, okay. I'm like, one, I'm going to play against stereotype. Casey's just going to be very cool and chill about the whole breakup. In the true fashion of ending any kind of TV show, I need like one last moment before the screen goes dark so that you can all point at the screen and go, oh, oh shit, shit. And so she's like, oh, ow, that's my tattoo. Which all happened at the table, too. We're like, oh, oh shit, shit. Yeah, and she's like, oh, look, it's, it's a worm. It's part of my clan. And then it's like, boom, end story.
And with that, end episode. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Misdirected Mark Plays. Now let's do some Patreon channels before we get out of here. Let's start with the Royal Court. The Polish Ogre, who is our very own Polish Ogre. Ty Prunty, also known as Lord Timeonger. Lars Henrik Evjan, the Lord Out of Time. Jim, the Royal Merchant Emeritus. Chromatic Chameleon, the Queen's Spy Mistress. J.T. Evans, the Queen's Librarian. Schmitty, the Keeper of the Labyrinth. Andrew Dacey, the Warden of Whiskies. John Carney, the Court Necromancer. Craig, the Lord of One Name. Tiberius Starcrash Smith, the Baron of Britannia. Eric Bontz, the Weregator. And Kevin Lovecraft, the Royal Beard. Now we have a bunch of other patrons that get a shout out here too. Thank you so much. John, Chris Constantine, Miko Froelich, Eric Simon, Athelus, Not That Billy Mitchell, Fiona, Kathleen Halperin, Christopher Gamelk, Michael Beck Esperum, Joseph Knoll, Carlos Heptilemma, Michael Draper, Alice Kira, Jim Fitzpatrick, Brantley Harris, Steve Radabaugh, Rory McLeod, Ninjabi, Richard Wyatt, Joseph Peralta, Brian Kurtz, My Brett, not My Brett, but somebody's Brett, Chris Steele, Jared Rasher, Eileen Barnes and Brandon Barnes. Thank you so much for being our patrons. If you'd like more content like this, you can check it out at misdirectedmark.com. If you are interested in supporting the show and other shows on Misdirected Mark Productions, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com MMP. You can get a whole bunch of stuff there, including extra bonus podcast episodes, material concerning this game, The Children of the Shroud, that includes character sheets, our game rules, some of our setting stuff, and Phil's thoughts from behind the screen. If that's not your thing, then you can just tell a friend about us. We'd greatly appreciate it. If you're looking for other podcasts to listen to, there are a variety of shows on our network. You can check out Pandas Talking Games with Phil and Senda, where they talk about all kinds of game stuff. The Gnomecast, where a bunch of gnomes get together to talk about gaming topics to avoid being thrown in the stew. And Thaco with Advantage, where Ange and Jared talk all about D&D. They're going to talk about it anyway, so why not record it? If that's still not enough content for you, we have a number of other podcasts that we recommend and are friends with. The Tabletop Bellhop, your board game concierge. The Knights of the Night, an excellent AP podcast. Mastering Dungeons, where they talk all about D&D if you want some more D&D stuff. And How to RPG with Sean P. Kelly. You can catch that on YouTube. He's live on Saturday mornings. I'm often in the chat room there. Well, this has been a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Mic drop. We out.